business never stops. You're constantly reinventing and constantly looking over your shoulder. And the minute you think that you've achieved that summit, <laughs> you better be ready for a battle because somebody's going to be coming for your crown. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Greg Radner, Chief Marketing Officer at Rain. The art of war teaches us to rely not on the likelihood of the enemy's not coming, but on our own readiness to receive him. That's a quote from Sun Tzu's famous book, The Art of War. I don't have to tell you that the world of business is often a matter of survival, where one leader conquers another, with better products, better marketing, more investment, or just plain more sales. The pursuit of success means a business leader must understand the competition, where it is coming from, and beat it. Kind of like war. That's the idea behind one of the most popular podcasts out today, it's called Business Wars. Business Wars tells the stories of rival companies, of what drives them and their leaders, investors, and executives to success or to ruin. Now, the program's host, David Brown, has released a new book called The Art of Business Wars, Battle-Tested Lessons for Leaders and Entrepreneurs from History's Greatest Rivalries. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast, David Brown. Greg, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Excited to have you here. I wanted to talk to you a little bit first about the podcast. Uh -huh. So describe for our audience the kind of business wars that you featured. It's interesting uh, because when someone first came to me with the idea of business wars, I got it. It was like, <laughs> of course. And I think, uh, I think it connects with a lot of non-business folks as much as business types because um, – we all have our, I don't know, affiliations somehow. They all, the, some of these brands become almost like part of our identity almost. I mean, there are Mac people and, and, and there are PC people, right? Mm -hmm. but, but you can take this uh, way back. I mean, you can go back to Ford versus Chevrolet, you know. Uh, you, can, uh, you can go way beyond that. I mean, if you take it back to uh, Bell Telephone and, and uh, Western Union, even I mean, so this is this takes on dimensions that go beyond just the consumer business element. It's it's also in many ways the history of the world that's around us. When I was a little kid, I, I remember seeing these logos in, a, in an encyclopedia and being fascinated by them, and then connecting them with things that I knew about, like there was Westinghouse on the refrigerator, you know, and it was like, okay, well, there's a backstory here. That that symbol meant something. And the more that I learned about people like George Westinghouse, the more I came to appreciate, you know, who he was. And I don't think a lot of people know, for instance, his story. Same thing for Thomas Edison. We've had a, in the past 20, 30 years, almost a universal reawakening over Nikolai Tesla, even though he was revolutionary in his field. So uh, to me, I, I think one of the things that Business Wars tries to do is not just show the battle of titans, you know, the, the Nike versus Adidas, which we've certainly done, or Marvel Comics versus DC Comics or something like that. I think what we're trying to do is talk about the people that are involved, and I think that's, in a way, at the heart, literally and figuratively, of what business really is. You know, it's funny, if you turn on CNBC, you hear people talking about businesses as if they're monolithic institutions that are playing chess with each other. 
but really we're talking about a human dynamic that's often unacknowledged and underappreciated. And that's what Business Wars as a podcast tries to do. I mean, we've done it for about 300 episodes now where we explore over a series of, of six episodes generally with an interview episode following um, what uh, a, a, a particular business battle. Um, but really the meat and potatoes for me is who are these entrepreneurs and where do these ideas come from and why do people take the steps that they take? And then we start to see ourselves in some of these stories in a really deep and meaningful way. Uh, so that's sort of where the, that's a long way of answering your question about, about the podcast, but that, but that's sort of what the podcast is trying to do. It's looking at these business battles, but not from a standpoint of dog eat dog, winner versus loser. It's really about these human stories. And I think that's, what's made it an appealing podcast, not just for business people, but for general audiences. Sure. And you, and you listed out some great sort of rivalries you can add to that list Coke and Pepsi, uh-huh. Netflix and Blockbuster. I mean, uh-huh. did you have any favorite business rivalries that came out of doing this podcast? <laughs> you know it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a Gibson person. I don't know if you have any guitar players listening in your in your audience, but you know the musical instrument industry is huge, and the two big guitar players in that in that space, Gibson versus Fender. So I love that story, but I love it for a lot of reasons that I didn't. I didn't fully realize that I would. Uh, for example, there's this great story about how Les Paul, who back in the you know 40s, 50s, and early 60s, was a, a really well-known pop star with Mary Ford, his wife. And he was well-known as an inventor for creating the multi-track recordings that really became central to the creation of rock and roll in, in many respects. But he approached Gibson, well-known, think about, about this, he's a well-known celebrity. He approaches Gibson with this idea for an electric guitar because there's a need for it, because music's getting louder. And if you want to be heard over the drums and the bass and the other instruments, you have to electrify that little guitar with a sound hole. So his idea is to take basically a, a, what amounts to a kind of railroad track tie, put some strings across it, and he shows this thing to Gibson executives, and they're looking at each other like, What's this guy on? Right? They don't they don't get it. Les Paul is basically trying to answer a problem that he as a musician is having. Well, Gibson rebuffs him, but there's a dude in Southern California named Leo Fender who happens to be a Les Paul fan. And he also happens to have his own repair business on the side where he's repairing amplifiers and stereos and hi-fi gear and that kind of thing. Well, he knows about Les Paul. He knows Les Paul has not had a had much success in this, but he also knows that Les is onto something because of the musicians that he's been rubbing shoulders with in his electronics repair industry. So he comes out. He's not even a musician. He doesn't know how to play the guitar, but he crafts on his workbench what becomes what is to this very day one of the most foundational elements in contemporary music the Fender Telecaster. And it's basically just a slab of wood, albeit styled much better than the original uh, Les Paul log was. And the thing takes off. It explodes. It, it, it becomes something that every country music player has to have, every TV performer has to have, because it allows you to be heard. And it also opens up a whole new sonic landscape for music. Well, Gibson, of course, had the chance but they couldn't see past their own success. Gibson 
didn't think they really had much of a challenger in the industry. Why would they want to put strings on a on a log and try to sell it under Les Paul's name, no less? Well, anyway, Les Paul was generous enough that when Gibson came knocking on his door saying, uh, uh, you know that log? <laughs> well, he was generous enough to sign with Gibson, and the rest, in a way, is rock and roll history. The Les Paul guitar is, you know... Uh, like the Telecaster, is a staple. I love that story in part, too, because Gibson didn't defeat Fender. Fender didn't defeat Gibson. These are two companies that at least were smart enough to realize that business never stops, that you're constantly reinventing and constantly looking over your shoulder. And the minute you think that you've achieved that summit, (laughs) you better be ready for a battle because somebody's going to be coming for your crown. That's great. It's not a surprise to me after listening to you tell that story why the podcast is doing so well. Congratulations on the success of it as well. Well, congratulations um, on the success of this podcast, Greg. This is this is doing so well too. Uh, more than really I thought. Exciting. Yeah, more than really I thought. Exciting. But, yeah. but it's great to listen to those stories um, and and uh, and to bring it to life through you know the people, like you said. So let's let's turn uh, to the book, actually. So. Mm-hmm. How does the Art of Business Wars book differ at all from the podcast? Well, one thing that we had not done in the podcast, we had not really pulled back and talked about, okay, what do we make of what's what we've just described? We're telling the stories. And part of the beauty of the podcast, I think, is that people can kind of deduce from what they're hearing, sort of extract lessons from it. But... It seemed obvious that there was an interest in wanting to know, okay, if you could take that sort of 30,000-foot perspective, what could you extract? What lessons could you draw from these business battles? I think it's interesting that that, – so what we did, by the way, was we basically and clearly used the conceit of business wars to riff on Sun Tzu's The Art of War, which has perennially been a best-selling book for business managers, probably more than warriors. Um, and, and we laid out the book in such a way that rather than repeating the clashes that we'd gone through, about half of them, maybe a little bit more, are profiles from from the podcast. But we also added in a lot of stories that we haven't yet gotten to or, or we, we just haven't yet found the right place to, you know, to put it into the podcast. And we've tried to draw out lessons that, in a sense, parallel what Sun Tzu uh, was doing with The Art of War. And so... In a, in a way, it was a kind of conceit that we were building on, the art, the art of business wars, clearly. But something that happened with the book was that we're not really focusing on the clashes of titans. What we're doing more than that is trying to focus on the development of successful businesses, businesses that have succeeded, and what was going on in the back and what challenges these entrepreneurs faced, what challenges these businesses faced, as they tried to continue to succeed, make their first breakthrough, uh, you know, it's it's more of of a storytelling book where we're talking about twenty seven remarkable sort of case studies, but we're telling it very much in a kind of human narrative way that uh, we hope uh, a lot of people will will find a page turn. Yeah, great. Um, well, you know, here at Rain, we focus on helping our members identify and mitigate risk. Mm-hmm. And, and that includes kind of sizing up what's coming down the road, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's a friendly competitor or from a hostile threat actor like uh, a cyber hacker, for example. 
So can we talk a little bit about how does risk, if it does, how does risk fit into some of the greatest rivalry, rivalries that you've highlighted? Well, I'll, I'll pick up on something that I was just talking about. No victory is ever really final. And a lot of sophisticated business warriors, if you will, already get this. But frankly, there are a lot of entrepreneurs, talented idea people who know what, what they want to do, but they don't really know how to get it where they want it to be. And I think that the risk for those individuals can be incredibly perilous, especially as you're starting to taste success. And when I was hearing you talking about risk, what it reminded me of was, well, this this idea that when the world changes and your business doesn't, in a sense, the war is over for you because you're not even aware of, of what the battlefield landscape looks like. And I remember this story. It had to do with IBM and, and in a way, the start of the computer revolution that we are still experiencing today. Not many of your listeners, I don't think, remember punch cards, but it was the way computing was done. It was the way that data collection and gathering, uh, it was the state of the art for more than a decade. And that was responsible for IBM's business success for years, the punch card. And the idea that you would ever move away from that seemed anathema to growth, success in this new burgeoning computer business. It served him poorly in the long run. But ultimately, what, what happened that made IBM a survivor and, in fact, led them to continue to thrive was that the president of IBM was willing to finally recognize that someone else in his organization, his son, had a better sense of where the technology was headed. Technology is just one aspect of what's constantly changing, certainly more than it was back in the days of, of Big Blue ruling the roost in, in the computer industry. Now we're seeing those developments happen at the speed of light. And we're seeing them happen in, in large part because of issues like, for instance, regulatory changes in places where you have uh, uh, major manufacturing concerns. Or, for instance, as we've seen during this pandemic, supply chain issues. So these things are, are happening and they will affect your business if you and, and negatively, too, if you're not aware of it and taking steps proactively. You have to manage those unforeseen risks to survive and certainly to thrive. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. With in-house expertise and a global network of experts, Rain provides more than 400 corporations, government agencies, and academic institutions with risk intelligence and actionable insights from the collective wisdom of our global network. We provide tools and intelligence to help you efficiently stay ahead of emerging risks in five key areas, including geopolitical risk, security and threat intelligence, healthcare, cybersecurity, and of course, legal, regulatory, and compliance. Find out more at rainnetwork.com. Uh, you write that, though the title of it, uh, of Sun Tzu's book, is The Art of War. <laughs> Sun Tzu was primarily concerned with avoiding a fight. Because right. he knew firsthand war was expensive, wasteful, risky. Um, and for that reason, it, it was above all that, that it was war was always the last resort. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. So, exactly. so when is the best time to engage with a business enemy 
uh, in quotes there. And is there ever a good time to just walk away? Boy, that's a that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, some of the greatest histories of business are uh, if they they seem almost too good to believe, right? Just just incredible sort of legendary stories. The the fact is, they often are too good to be believed, and and we should <laughs> think twice about how those origin stories, you know, came about because. One of the hallmarks of a great entrepreneur or a great business leader is the willingness to trust instinct. And how do you how do you put that into how, how do you define that in a meaningful way for someone who is a who is a business leader? Trust your instinct. And yet time and again, we see this happening. Um, something I was thinking about uh, when you were bringing up this question was, for instance, a name we all know, Henry Ford. We primarily think of Henry Ford as being the inventor of, well, not just the Model T, but the system that made that possible, right? The, 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 the system of mass production that sure. it became a staple. But early on, early on, Henry Ford, he had to get off the ground. He had a great idea for this Model T, and he had to get investors to help him. That compromised his vision for what he saw the Ford Motor Company eventually becoming. So what he did was the ultimate sort of um, sort of a, a side job, I guess, if, if you want to put it that way. He began to make his own engines with a separate business, a completely different business, supplying the Ford Motor Company with its engines. This gave him the personal wealth that it took to purchase what was the Ford Motor Company and get complete control wrested away from its investors who wanted it to think a little smaller than Henry uh, had an idea for. So in a way, he was competing internally with what you know with with other uh, people on his board, his investors, to get the company to where it needed to be. So business conflicts don't always come from outside. Sometimes they can come from inside, and you have to figure out how to do that. I don't think that there are good ways to know whether now is the time to engage or not. But I do think that one of the hallmarks of successful business leaders is the willingness to accept what your intuition, what your instinct is telling you. But this can't be just uh, a gut check periodically. It has to be informed. And that's what makes intuition, that's what makes successful business leaders successful, that they know the landscape. They, they, they know um, because they have the data and the information at hand that permits them to trust those instincts. It's, you know, you, if you go in blindly, you, you're not going to succeed. If you don't know who your competitors are, uh, what it is, what sort of business uh, it is that you're in, and, and what the ancillary um, forces are that may ultimately affect your survival uh, or your ability to, to succeed. If you don't know those things, um, you're going to be stranded. Uh, so I don't think that there is a glib short answer for that, except that you do have to have the data and information at hand, and you have to know your field intensely. Mary Barra of, of General Motors is one of those kinds of leaders. Someone else, there's a, 
uh, one of the leaders at, at Beach Aircraft. Do you remember Beach Aircraft? They used to, uh, I think they they are still in business. They I think make so, yes. private planes, right? Well, uh, one of the things that, that uh, the leaders of Beach Aircraft did, they would memorize their parts list so that they knew their uh, their company inside and out, but they also got a chance to 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 rub shoulders with their competition, and they would use that opportunity as a way to learn about what what else was happening in the business, and it really helped propel Beach to the top of its game back in the 1960s. So uh, there are lots of ways to get at the answer to the question that you're posing here, but I think a lot of it is trusting the gut. Because you can trust it, because you know uh, what the situation is uh, with your data and your research. Yeah, great, great response. The, you know, part of what we do at Rain also is provide intelligence, you know, over helping companies with their business continuity and resiliency with some of the intelligence that we, we provide. Um, similarly, the stories in the art of business wars, they're fascinating, but, but some, so are some of the lessons that you can draw out from them. Uh, and they're not, you know, just being better uh, with a better product, right? It's really about determination, ingenuity, patience, uh, grit, and and other traits that that contribute to positive outcome. Mm. Maybe you can share some of those lessons you've taken away from the podcast uh, that you've included in the book uh, that might provide insight for some of our members around that resiliency. Well, one of the things that uh, comes to mind is how sometimes you can be working within a, a company and uh, you may have a great idea, but you're hitting a wall. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Ruth Handler, who is not necessarily a household name, but in the business world, I mean, she's, um, she's very well known. Ruth Handler was the husband of Elliot Handler, the L in Mattel, the toy, the toy maker. Um she had an idea back in 1955. Talk about intuition. She was watching her daughter, Barbara, playing with dolls and noticed that she always played with, like, paper dolls over the, you know, the little baby dolls that 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 she had in her bedroom. And she asked her daughter once, well, why are you doing this? And she said, well, Mom, I, I, I don't want to just be a mommy to baby dolls, you know. And, and she showed her mother how she was playing with a, a grown-up woman paper doll. Well, that was an inspiration for Ruth to think maybe little girls want to imagine what life would be like when they're all grown up. It's hard to believe that that was a revolutionary concept, but in 1955, it was. And so Ruth went to the board at the young Mattel toy company, and the men around the table looked at her as if she had three heads. Now, here she was, the, the, the wife of one of the founders of Mattel, who had had an extraordinary insight about the way little girls wanted to play with toys, but the all-male board wouldn't have any of it. So she, kept, she nurtured that. She nurtured that. And on a trip to Europe, she saw a little doll in uh, the window of a tobacco shop. It was a doll being sold as a curio to... Uh, to older men, really. It was something that they would put on the dashboard. It was called the Lily Doll, and it was based around a German cartoon at the time that was you know, sort of a uh, racy, uh, very politically incorrect um, <laughs> character. Well, she got that doll, and she brought it back to Mattel headquarters. 
and she said, we've got to do this. And she showed him the doll. And then she talked about how you could develop a whole line of clothing and other things around this. But she persisted. She persisted. Again, one of the hallmarks, we can say you persist, but until you've actually walked in those shoes, I think that that's something that we're trying to do with the Art of Business Wars. We're trying to give people an opportunity to put themselves in those shoes and imagine what it would be like to face some of these obstacles and some of these forces that are endemic to uh, doing business. Well, it's, those are great stories. I, I love these uh, the personal stories that you've embedded in here. And so would you say, though, that the, the lessons that, that come out of this, they're the same whether you're CEO of a multinational company or of a startup trying to claim space in the marketplace? I mean, is it the same lessons uh, that apply? Um, I would say on one level, yes. But the reality is, as any entrepreneur listening to us right now, the reality of it is you're constantly sort of the driver behind the wheel shifting the standard gears. You're constantly rowing those gears because there are mountains to climb, so you have to downshift. Uh, I think that while there are a lot of lessons that along the way, depending on the cycle of your business, that you can take advantage of, not every lesson is going to be the one for you in a particular given moment. But that's why I think that some of these rules that we're trying to sort of highlight or extract from these lessons are contextualized so that you can, again, see yourself in some of these stories and think, oh, I recognize this now. Yeah, this is just like what happened when fill in the blank. I hope that that becomes something that people seize on and and, and enjoy. I'm, I'm thinking about not just generalist you know readers, but people who do have a great idea and want to change the world. That's something else that entrepreneurs have in common. They never want to do it small. And hanging on to that through all the adversity, man, that's hard. I have a, so much respect for people who start their own businesses. And even if they don't become, you know, the top of the heap, what an enormous, what an enormous thing to get your idea off the ground and have it succeed. It just can't stop there, right? So uh, hopefully some of those, some of those lessons will, will prove useful to people with great ideas who want to change tomorrow. David, one last idea I wanted to throw your way. Uh, this, I think, would be very helpful for our members is what what these business rivalries really teach us about resiliency. Maybe you can close us off with, with some comments on that. Resiliency is probably one of the um, biggest assets that any business leader can have. Anyone who wants to um, affect change or see a, a great idea become big. I'm thinking about, like, for instance, the story of Biocon. Uh, Kiran Mazumdar Shah founded this Indian biotech firm. I mean, the short version is she succeeded by selling drugs for very low prices, and this was an approach that a lot of the Western pharma giants had shunned. But what's left out of that sort of nice-sounding story is that she had to combat bias against women executives all along the way. Despite her advanced degree, she was overlooked. Just It was assumed that she didn't have what it took to run a biochemical company, much less a pharmaceutical company. And yet people who were willing to recognize her abilities, her training, her talents, they were the ones that gave her 
advice, tips, opportunities along the way that allowed her to take her company into, well, what is now a, a, a multi-billion dollar firm based in India. In fact, it's a global firm, global enterprise. But the thing is, a lot of people facing the sorts of obstacles that she faced would have said, I can't, I can't do it. Maybe I'm relegated to being, you know, the number three at this firm. Or maybe I'm relegated to just getting food on the table. I think that without the resilience that the greatest entrepreneurs uh, exhibit, you won't succeed. And yet with it, the sky is the limit. That's great. David Brown is the host of Business Wars podcast and the author of a new book entitled The Art of Business Wars, Battle-Tested Lessons for Leaders and Entrepreneurs. David, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, Greg. We'll have the links to the podcast and book at our website. Rain is a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. With actionable insights from the collective wisdom of our global network of risk experts, we provide tools and intelligence to help you efficiently stay ahead of emerging risks. In five key areas, including geopolitics, security and threat intelligence, healthcare, legal, and compliance. Become a member of the largest community of risk professionals today. Sign up at RainNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Greg Radner. Thanks for listening.